Hey, if you got a Bible, let's go to the book of First John, chapter three. We're going to pick up in our uh, summer series through this uh, ancient letter that was written to a community of early Christians in Asia Minor by one of Jesus' original twelve disciples, and. Uh, at this point, John is a very old man in his 80s or even 90s, maybe one of the very few original disciples that's still left. And so there's just kind of this beautiful, intimate thing that's happening as this old saint in his later years is now passing on his love and joy that he has in Jesus and kind of, kind of passing the legacy to the next generation. And so... Um, the passage that Pat read for us this morning, uh, in a lot of ways, deals with this question of what does authentic faith look like? What does it look like to live in this world as the people of God in such a way that would give the world an authentic picture of who God is and what God is like? In many ways, that is the mission of the Church of Jesus, that we are to be the body of Christ. What, what does a body do? Well, it's the physical representation of our being. And so we are the body of Christ, meaning we are his physical presence in the world. And it's also our vocation then as the people of God to be faithful to the life and the gospel of Jesus so that our shared life would give the watching world a vision of who God is and what God is like. And so central not only to this passage this morning, but really to this entire uh, letter that we've been studying through is this picture of love, right? That if there's one thing we know to be true about God, it's that God is love. And even uh, what's fascinating, some of them are more skeptical non-believing friends who have a hard time uh, coming to faith of, with the God in the Bible, some of the time, at least in people I'm talking to, they have uh, real struggles with the pictures of God that seem to be um, somewhat angry or wrathful. And those are good questions to ask and we should wrestle with them. The problem for these kind of skeptic people and skeptical people in the modern world is that they have a hard time with the biblical revelation of God because they believe that if there's a God, God should be love. And the fascinating question then is, well, where did you get that idea? Why would you believe that if there's, if there's a God, that God should be love? And the truth is, it's from the Bible. There's actually no other uh, foundation to build that claim on. But so what they're doing is rather than kind of uh, building their own car and driving it, they're taking a Christian car and driving it into a tree, uh, if you know what I mean. And I think that's something that we can embrace and opens up incredible dialogue that, yeah, we would agree with you that our God, the God of the universe, the creator of all, is in fact a God of love, and the ultimate revelation or manifestation of that love is in the person of Jesus. And so this first chunk that we're looking at this morning, verses 11 through 15, uh, John begins by saying, this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he goes on and contrasts this uh, Christian love with essentially hate, hatred, 
which is this mark of the world that he lived in. He was looking around and observing. There is so much brokenness and pain and corruption and sin and injustice in the world. And all of that is nothing new. He ties it all the way back to the story of Cain and Abel and the reality of hatred and murder and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the truth is the world hasn't changed that much, has it? That we still live in a world that... uh, that manifests hatred in so many different ways. And it's not just people of certain faiths or religions or belief systems that are prone to hatred. It's like it's somehow uh, the seeds of it are planted innately within humanity. So it's not hard to find just flipping on the news, right? Reading through the stories of what's happening in the world. So much abuse, so much violence, so much war, terrorism, all of that is the outworking of this thing called hatred. Or even in just more kind of subtle ways that we almost accept as normal. I'm not on Facebook, Jen is, and every once in a while I get on and spy on you guys. Um, But man, it doesn't take long before somebody shares some sort of conviction or article or story, and especially if it's along the political lines, and out come the wolves, right? And this hatred, this demonization of anybody that believes something even slightly different than we do. And we just go to, go to town on each other. And so John's saying, if we are the people of Jesus, the body of Christ, God's beloved children, then we can't live in the way of the world. That these tendencies and temptations towards demonization, towards hatred, towards uh, violence towards one another, that can't That's not congruent with our identity as those who belong to the God is love. And so he goes, if we are going to claim to be followers of Jesus, then we would live lives marked by love. That love, not hate, love, not violence, love, not even truth, although they're not in conflict with each other, but love would be the thing that we should be known for in the world. So what's interesting is culturally today, and and I'll tie it back to John's world in a moment because it really hasn't changed that much, you sort of have truth folks and you have grace folks, right? And so the truth folks are those in the world that have everything figured out. They know all the right answers, have all the right doctrines, know everything perfectly, and their tendency of hatred is towards those who disagree with them, towards those who see things differently and would choose to believe or live differently. So we call these the truth folks, that they're all about being right, And on the other end of the spectrum, you have what we could call the grace folks, the ones that would say, hey, everybody has the right to believe whatever they want, find their own truth, and for them, the seeds of hatred grow towards anybody that would claim truth. And so this was true in John's day as he's writing to a a church community, as we know, that's going through a hard time and that there have been false teachers called Gnostics that have come in and have led many from the family of God away by claiming that they actually can't know the truth, that they're claiming a new truth about who Jesus is. 
And so instead of claiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God who has come to us in the flesh, the Gnostics are saying, no, Jesus is good, he's okay, he's a good moral teacher, a spiritual person, but uh, he wasn't God. Which really isn't that different than how most of kind of modern progressive culture thinks about Jesus, right? Most people think, yeah, he was a good teacher, wise, moral, I like what he said about compassion and justice and uh, forgiveness and that sort of thing. He wasn't God. And so John is writing into that environment, the same environment we live in today. And so at the center of this uh, set of texts here is really a series of tests. John goes, here's how you know that you are living in tune with the true God. Here's how you know that you know God. When you're getting it from the left, when you're getting it from the right, when some people are claiming uncertainty is the only way and others are claiming certainty is the only way, he goes, where does that leave us? Lost and confused without an anchor. So he gives us a few tests here. Here's how you know that you are in God. That the God you worship and are connected to is the real God and not just some made-up God or something like that. And so uh, we're going to walk through a couple of these tests, and here's what I want to say as we get into it. I want to encourage you to apply these tests to yourself, first and foremost, because the temptation for many of us in sermons like this or any kind of sermon is to think about all the people that need to hear this, right? (laughs) And uh, I always kind of chuckle when that's, you know, the feedback I get from you guys, oh, that was a great sermon, I wish my husband was here right, (laughs) or whatever it is. Uh, I I wish he was here too, but let's listen for ourselves first, okay? So we're going to apply these tests to ourselves. And so the first one, again, has to do with uh, what do we do with Jesus? So before we get to truth or grace or what's the right place to be on that spectrum, Ultimately, the revelation of love isn't an idea or a set of doctrines. It's not even a religion, but love is a person. God is love. And so if we want to know that we know God, it begins with what do we do with the person of Jesus? And so down in verse 23, All throughout this scripture, we see different ways that John glories and basks in the beauty of Christ. But in 23, he goes, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, John uses the word believe differently than how we tend to use the word believe. When we think believe, we think uh, a faith step to hold something that can't be proven true or known for sure. And there certainly is an aspect of belief that has to do with that. But for John, faith is about a relationship. Belief isn't primarily about an intellectual uh, position that we hold, but it has to do with knowing. And knowing means a relationship. So he goes, this is where it starts for us. This is the core of our identity and of our faith, that we know Jesus, the Jesus who is revealed to us in the scriptures. 
So again, false teachers in their, in their day and ours are redefining who Jesus is. They're saying that he's a man, that the Spirit of God came upon him, but then he left. And the reality is that any confidence we would have that we have the real Jesus comes from seeing the full and complex and mysterious and robust revelation that we have of him in the Bible. We don't get to make Jesus in our image. But we come to faith, to a knowledge of the Son, Jesus Christ, who's both fully human and fully divine. Fully God, fully man. Son of God, son of man. Something that doesn't go over so well or fit nicely into, uh, into categories. Okay? And so that's where this has to start that we would be uh, recipients of this invitation to know the real Jesus and to wrestle with him and not to pick and choose the parts of his teaching or his legacy that we like and disregard the rest. That's a good sign that we've created a make-believe Jesus. The second test and kind of the main emphasis of this passage has to do with how do we love or how do we treat other people? And so several times he goes, this is how we know that we belong to God, that we love one another. The evidence that we have found the real Jesus or been found by him is that it shows up in this fruit called love. So in verse 17 and 18, he gives us a really clear picture. He goes, if anyone has material possessions, and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, not us, let not us love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So one of the signs or one of the tests that we are invited to apply to ourselves is when we see somebody who's in need, does our heart point towards them? Are we prone to give, to be generous, to serve, to sacrifice of our time and our money and our stuff and our energy for the sake of meeting the needs that are presented before us. And he goes, this is what love looks like. Right, we use the word love all kinds of ways. I love my wife, I also love burritos, and um, what do we even mean? Well, primarily when we think of love, we think of a feeling, of an affection, or something like that. And we definitely, that is a huge aspect of what love is. But John seems to be defining love, not so much by like how you feel towards a certain person, but how you actually treat them. Love in action. The picture of love here isn't sentimental, it's sacrificial. It's love that goes out of its way to meet the needs of those around us, to seek the good of the other. And so he says, let us not love with words, but love um, in actions and in truth. Now clearly he's not saying we shouldn't love with words, he's saying we shouldn't love only with words. We shouldn't just go around saying that we love everybody without that <clears throat> love actually showing up in, in action. And so here's what's interesting, and again, 
back to this kind of dichotomy that you have some churches or expressions of Christianity that only love with word. Meaning their understanding of what it means to be the people of God in the world has to do with proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Telling the story of of creation and fall and redemption and restoration or of God and man and sin and forgiveness. And for many churches, and many of us grew out of these churches, this is our main posture or relationship with the non-believing world around us. It's that we would proclaim the love of God through words. But then there's other churches that would say, no, our job is to show the love of God, to act it out, to in works and acts of justice and mercy and compassion, that we, people don't need to be told that God loves them, people need to be shown. And where does John land in this whole thing? I think if you read throughout the entire passage, and then especially within the context of the Gospels and the rest of the writings, it's not an either-or, is it? That the love God has for us is to be reflected or channeled into the world, not just through word and not just through actions, but in, in both. And so again, we see this kind of, this dichotomy that's really interesting, and I want to Just kind of break it down for you like this. Um, I know that's a lot of words, but this passage connects to stuff I deeply believe uh, is core to the vision and mission God's given us as a church. And so on the left side of Christianity, we have what we might call liberalism, and on the right side, what we might call fundamentalism, right? And so kind of broke it out in this chart that that gives, of course, a caricature, But uh, if you pay attention to these kinds of things, then you'll realize that there really is a lot to it. And so um, when it comes to the gospel, the focus on the left is the gospel of Jesus, and the focus on the right is the gospel about Jesus. Okay, this helps really clarify why Christians often feel like we're speaking different languages from one another. The gospel of Jesus, meaning the gospel Jesus himself preached, was what? Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. All throughout the gospels, this is what Jesus is teaching about. Over and over and over again, he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, that the kingdom of God has been planted within us and planted within this earth, that the kingdom of God is coming and that he is the king. This is the gospel of Jesus. It's undeniable. But then we get to the epistles, which are really more about the gospel about Jesus. Paul and the other apostles trying to explain the good news of Jesus' kingdom, but in their own words. And so we get the good news about Jesus, about the salvation, about the forgiveness, about the redemption that is found in him. And so you have some churches that spend all their time focusing on the gospel of and other churches that focus all their time on the gospel about. So when it comes to sin, on the left, the focus is on social sin, the brokenness in society, and on the right, the focus is on personal sin, the brokenness within me and within you. When it comes to the mission of the church, on the left, it's about social justice, and on the right, it's about evangelism. Social justice meaning pursuing, making the world right, 
or a better place in evangelism, meaning bringing the truth to people about their own state and salvation. Uh, The church on the left is about showing Jesus and on the right about preaching Jesus. Witness on the left is about demonstration or doing good works. And on the right, it's about declaration, proclaiming the good words. The patron saint, if you will, on the left is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And on the right, someone like Billy Graham. So Dr. King, known for uh, taking the theological truths of the scriptures related to the image of God being imprinted on every human soul and then looking at a segregated and racist society and saying, this is not how God wants things. This is not a reflection of God's kingdom. That's gospel action. And then Billy Graham, who just passed away recently, as we know, this legacy of boldly and widely and deeply proclaiming the simple truth of of hope for your own soul in Jesus as an evangelist. Salvation in liberalism would be freedom from suffering, and in fundamentalism would be freedom from sin. The focus on the work of Christ in liberalism would be the life of Jesus, and on the right, it would be the death of Jesus. So more progressive or liberal Christians spent a lot more time studying and emphasizing Jesus' life and teachings, and more conservative Christians spent a lot of time emphasizing his sacrificial death. The nature of Christ. On the liberal side, the humanity of Christ is what's emphasized. And on the right, the deity, the divine nature of Christ. The priority on the left is meeting physical and immediate needs, caring for the poor, the sick, the hungry. And on the right, it's meeting spiritual and eternal needs, our need for forgiveness and grace and acceptance and adoption. The liberal view of holiness is doing good, good works. And the fundamental view of holiness is being good, keeping Uh, keeping the rules, so to speak. And the view of the kingdom of God, the emphasis in liberalism is that the kingdom of God is already here, and in fundamentalism, it's that it's not yet here. Um, Again, these are caricatures or generalizations, but if you pay attention to the state of the church, this is uh, a pretty accurate representation of the divide between really what we would say are two halves of Christ's body. Now, which one's right? What do you think I'm going to say? Both and, right? Both and. We don't want to fall into either trap. The tragedy is when you block out one side of the chart and just live on the other side. You're not being faithful to the Jesus of the Bible or the message of the gospel if you go to only one side or the other. Now my hunch, just from knowing you guys and being around the last few years, is that for many of us, uh, we entered the faith from the door on the right. Right? We grew up primarily in more conservative or even fundamentalist church environments. And so the emphasis was primarily on personal salvation. Lots of songs about the death and sacrifice of Jesus, the gospel about being saved, and that sort of thing. And I know this is a generalization as well, but I think the legacy and story of Antioch this far has been bringing people from the right more 
uh, and exposing to the left side. Right? This is what Ken uh, did so, so brilliantly and so well for his years here, is introduced us to this vision of the kingdom of God and this vision of justice and showing Jesus and bringing liberation and freedom to those who are suffering and oppressed. And so my heart and my vision for us as a church isn't that we is that we wouldn't fit nicely into either side. My hope would be that we would be faithful to the whole gospel, which, if we mash up these two lists together, would look something like this. That we're about the gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus. We address personal sin and social sin. We do evangelism and social justice. We show and preach Jesus. We demonstrate and declare the gospel. Dr. King and Reverend Graham are both our guys. Freedom from sin and suffering, life and death of Christ, deity and humanity of Christ, physical and spiritual needs, doing good and being good, and the kingdom of God is already here and not yet here. Does that sound good? So here's what's interesting. We are already living in this tension about as well as any community that I know of. And in fact, I know just that in recent months, if you look at the various things that are happening with the body of Christ, the greater body of Christ in Bend, Antioch is in that awkward middle space where nobody knows quite what to do with us. So I know that some of you guys were at the Franklin Graham Crusade last night, and I know that others of you marched in the Women's March a few months ago. Right? I know that some of you are involved in these kind of more old school, fundamentalist-ish kind of uh, Bible studies or ministries uh, around the city, and others of you are actively seeking to uh, serve our immigrant community. Right? I've been at these uh, gatherings around the town, and I know that Antiochers are the only ones that are in both of these places at once. So if we're getting it from both sides, then that's a good sign we're in the right spot to me, right? We don't fit nicely into any of these boxes because we are holding to the whole gospel, or at least we're hoping to, right? We're trying to. And that's exactly what John is calling this early church community into. So much of this language throughout the text is kind of old school, Right? He's like, yeah, if you're angry or hatred or a hater, you're actually a murderer, right? That doesn't go over very well on NPR or wherever else uh, in the world. Um, he goes, yeah, salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to the Father except through him, to, to paraphrase what he's saying here. Old school, conservative theology. And... Followers of Jesus should be the most radically loving and inclusive and compassionate people on the face of the earth. That we hold to these ancient truths. In verse 11, he goes, this message that you heard from the beginning. Nothing new. Old school Christian doctrine. We do not budge on the deity and the glory of Jesus. But that commitment to the real Jesus should cause us to be people who love our neighbors and even our enemies very well. The world doesn't know what to do with that. In fact, 
The name of our church comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11. Antioch was, in modern-day Turkey, probably the most ethnically and racially diverse city in the Roman Empire, maybe even more diverse than Rome itself. So very, very interesting place where people from lots of different cultures and countries and religions are all kind of together in one place. And what's fascinating is that in the ancient world, we know that most cities had walls built around them to protect those in the city from those on the outside. But Antioch actually had walls built within the city that divided the city into various sections. And so there was a Syrian section, there was an African section, there was a Jewish section, there was a Greek section. And so, yeah, we could say it was diverse, but it was incredibly segregated. And these various groups had to build walls between them and their neighbors. And then what happens is that in Acts chapter 11, early apostles of Jesus bring the good news to the city of Antioch. And we're told in Acts 11 that they preached it to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And what began to happen is that as the gospel was planted among the people of Antioch, they began to reach across the walls. That those who were receiving Christ were now receiving one another in a way that the world had never seen. And those barriers that used to separate people whose primary identity had to do with their ethnicity or religion or race, in Christ, they had a new primary identity. And they could look across the wall at the Syrian or African or Greek neighbor and recognize a brother or a sister. The world was shocked, so much so we're told in Acts 11, that there wasn't a word to describe this kind of social phenomenon. And so they said, well, let's call them Christians. The very first time Jesus' followers are referred to as Christians is when they're crossing the walls that society and culture has built when we're loving people unlike us, when we're sharing life deeply with people who we would never choose, there's this incredible display of the love of God. And it wasn't just racial and ethnic divisions, but it was like for the first time there was actually an invitation to be part of a community that was truly inclusive. It wasn't just for rich people or poor people. It wasn't just for men or for women. It wasn't just for Greeks or for Jews. Pretty much every other religion at that time, an incredibly pluralistic world, the Greek philosophers only really connected with the elite and the educated of society. And the Jewish, Christi or the Jewish family, which Christianity grew out of, we know, they were inclusive to a certain extent, but to become Jewish, you had to become Jewish, Right? and keep kosher and all, all the stuff that goes with it. Culturally, you had to adapt. But for Christians, they're saying, no, bring your culture, bring your racial identity, bring your socioeconomic status and your gender and your story and everything, 
and the family of God is open to all. So why would this happen? Like this is a crazy story within the history of our world. That from that first kind of thing in Antioch, that this mission now blows its way across the entire globe. And billions and billions and billions of people would come to belong to this this faith. Well, the reason is because of the unique teaching about Jesus, who's not just a wise moral teacher, but who is the Son of God. And the unique teaching about the Christian message of salvation that doesn't say you need to work hard and obey all these rules and then you will be right with God, but works the exact opposite and says because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are made right with God. You're already good with him. And from there, we're invited on this journey of growth and transformation of becoming who we really are. And so these tests, we'll stop with those two for this morning, of what do we do with Jesus? Are we comfortable worshiping, believing, trusting, and following the real Jesus of the Bible? And is our life marked by an outpouring of love for each other and for our neighbors? Do we selflessly, generously, sacrificially give ourselves away for the sake of those in need? How are you doing on the test so far? Anybody feel like they really aced it? Like, yeah, I pretty much love everybody perfectly all the time. Um, The power of God's word is first that it reveals the beauty of Jesus, but secondly that it also simultaneously reveals the brokenness of humanity. And so when we come to the scriptures, our eyes should be drawn Christ, and our hearts should be melted towards him, but at the same time, if we're really paying attention, we're not just reading scripture, but scripture is reading us, and it convicts us of sin, it exposes our selfishness and our brokenness in ways that, if I'm honest, I would rather not see or acknowledge or deal with. But if he's going, here's the true sign that you're in Christ, that you lay down your lives for your brothers and sisters, that you love others as God has loved you, then I have to say, um, I've got a ways to go. I'm not nailing this yet. And so what do we do? What do we do with our conviction that we have failed to love God and love others? I could try to guilt you in to going and loving people, but it will never work. As he goes off and says in the last section, our hearts will condemn us. We'll be confronted with our own selfish motivation. We'll be confronted with the reality that we often love so that we can be loved or so that we can be thought of as the kind of person who's just and kind and compassionate and open-minded or whatever. And if we're paying attention, our hearts will convict us, condemn us. So the work primarily... Church isn't go and love people. That is an expression of this work, but the real work he calls us to is to keep this command 
in verse 23. This is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. But first, your first job is to believe. Because love doesn't start with us. Love starts with God. The Bible doesn't give us a moralistic or behavioristic view of love. It's this relational, beautiful, but incredibly mysterious and rational at the same time view that we love because he first loved us. So Jesus wasn't the first one in the story of the Bible to be told by the Father that he's the beloved. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his people as the beloved. Jesus isn't the first one to be told he's the beloved, but he was the first one to believe it. The language in the last few verses, the one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. Hopefully you recognize that in language as language of union. That we are in Christ, Christ is in us. That Jesus' Father has now become our Father. That Jesus' record has become our record. That his standing and his identity has now been imparted to us. That we stand in relationship with God not because we have loved so well, but because we've been loved so well. That Christ has given his life to us. And so we come to the table this morning to receive love, to accept this invitation. This is love that Jesus laid down his life for us. In a very real way, the table is intended and has been practiced by believers for centuries now as a way for that life laid down to become our life. For the life of Jesus to enter into us. And so your job is to believe. If you say, I already believe the gospel, I'm saying, believe it more. Believe it harder. Believe it stronger. That you are loved by God today exactly as you are. No matter what you've done or what you're struggling with, no matter your doubts or your sins, none of that can keep you from the love of God that is in Christ. So come, receive the love and the life of Jesus, and then at the end, we'll be sent out to go and serve and love the world. Will you stand and pray with me? Our Father, we believe with all of our hearts that you are love and have loved us. And there are times where we struggle to really believe that, but deep down, your spirit testifies and reminds us and convinces us and lavishes your love upon us. And so we stand here this morning as your people as those in whom Christ dwells and delights, as those who live as citizens of the unshakable kingdom of God.
You are in us. We are in you. You have loved us well. And I pray that this morning your spirit would open our hearts to receive that love. And from there, that we would be people that are able to embrace and celebrate and proclaim the big gospel that you're making all things new, including us. Thank you for your love. We trust you, in Jesus' name.